Hello, I am Natalia Comis and this is Humans on a Mission, the podcast where I talk to inspiring humans who are living their true soul mission on earth. Join me in conversation with some of the most brilliant people on the planet today, discussing what makes us human, what extraordinary measures we go to in order to discover our true purpose, and how we can make an impact not only in our own lives, but that of others too. And who knows, perhaps you'll discover something magical about yourself in the process. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you all today. I'm always fascinated by how people explore their creativity and our humanity at the same time. And I feel like Ian Finch is a great example of this. Today, we're going to be hearing about Ian's adventures and his quest for finding happiness and connection through life's simple treasures. Today, we are talking to former Royal Marine Commando Ian Finch, who's an adventure and outdoor brand photographer, expedition guide and journalist who has been traveling to remote environments for over 10 years. Ian's desire to record, capture or lead expeditions in unfamiliar corners of the globe is driven by an urge to learn about traditions from the native cultures that call it home. His major expeditions or creative journeys are linked with this cultural thread or are part of his Traditions First Lifetime project. So welcome, Ian. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you for inviting me on. No worries. Thank you for being here. And wow, what, an ama- what amazing adventures you've been on from a 2,000 mile canoe descent of the Yukon River to a 1,300 mile journey to retrace the steps of the Cherokee. What haven't you done? Um, crikey. Yeah, there's still a lot of plans. <laughs> I, had, I had so many, so many journeys and ideas and, um, and things, stuff like that. It's sometimes overwhelming. To, to, to think of all the stuff that I want to do but I've got a lifetime to do it so there's, there's no rush. Mm. Ian how did you, this all start? Where did your love of adventure and the outdoors come from? I think a lot of it came from having that sort of like childlike curiosity um, mm. as a child um, and always sort of want to go out and camp and explore and um, stay in tents and climb trees and uh, even as a child I, I like to learn how how the forest worked or what plants were you could eat or fungies that you could eat and fungies that you couldn't. So it was always there and it was something that my my mum and especially my dad nourished in me because my dad was a, very much an outdoorsman. He, he hunted and shot and fished and spent a lot of time outdoors. So I got a lot of that from him. But what really sort of refined my love for the outdoors and being comfortable in the outdoors was probably my time in the, in the military in the Royal Marines that kind of refined my confidence in my sort of ability in the outdoors to be able to sort of handle certain weather conditions and the tiredness and the processes that you go through in expeditions because it's kind of like a very organized formatted experience in some some respects so that laid the foundations the military career laid the foundations for the confidence to go out there and explore some really wild places on this planet. Mm. Yeah, okay. So a couple of interesting things there. It's interesting that you say that it laid the foundations for the confidence for you to go out and do that. And I guess when you say lay the foundations, do you mean in terms of the practical or also the the more emotional aspects of that? I think it's both really. The military, Mm. uh, the structure of my military experience helps with and the discipline um, helps with expeditions because waking up when the weather's bad, getting up when the weather's bad and paddling or hiking through bad weather, that grit and that determination and the, the will and the drive all comes from the military aspects. But I think the confidence in the outdoors comes from exposure to nature, um, understanding nature, how it works and just spending as much time as I can in it. And that, mm. I think that, 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 you have a certain confidence in yourself and your abilities. Um, and once that is strengthened and that's nourished in the outdoors, you then have confidence to sort of push yourself in nature, I, I believe. Nice. Yeah. How did you actually get into the, the military to begin with? It was something that, that came from, uh, I'd always enjoyed the physical challenge of things. So I always enjoyed cross-country running. Um, and stuff like that and getting muddy and running through woodlands and all that kind of stuff so 
what drew me to the Marines was the physical mm. challenge of the entry process, which is a nine month entry process where you're constantly being physically and mentally uh, pushed to the limit and seeing how you adapt under pressure. Um, and it was just more of, for me, I knew it was never going to be a career. It was more of a, a goal that I wanted to achieve and see how I could be pushed physically. And, and to see, I, I've always wanted to see where my limits are. And that really did push me to my mental and physical limits to, to get, actually get into the Marines. Um, and when I got in, it was more of, okay, I'm going to do four or five years and I'm going to squeeze the juice out of every bit of this um, and then move on to the next thing. And I always knew that I was going to work for myself. Mm. somewhere deep down in my course somewhere I knew that I was going to be my own boss which is kind of counterintuitive really because that <laughs> that was the complete <laughs> opposite of the structure of the military but I just wanted to just be pushed physically um, and, and and see where my physical limits were mm. it's funny because I have the complete opposite experience <laughs> <laughs> I was in the cadets um, for I don't know, like a couple of years because uh, the school that I was at, we had to, it was obligatory actually, we had to do it at the time. And um, and I remember one day where we were treading water with our kit. I was just like, why? Why yeah. am I doing this? Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting because I think that, I do think that whole idea of sort of perseverance and and the and you know exactly what you were saying that the will to to keep going and to be disciplined I do think that played a part and that actually probably did and you know that was installed then for me as well I would say yeah I, I mean I totally agree the one of the the things that rolls over from my approach to wanting to join the military and then moving into sort of my expedition uh, framework was having a really clear end game to everything that I was doing so in the in the marines it was like just to get your green beret which is the signification that the beret that you wear when you finish training and that was always on my my radar every day I which is you shouldn't really do it but what I did was I actually bought before I joined the marines I bought a green beret and I put it on and which really you should not do that because you should only wear one if you've actually um and the right to really to wear it. But what I wanted to do, the reason why I did it was to visualize what it looks like with it on. And that was my kind of way of saying, right, you know, I, this is what I need to achieve and I can visualize myself wearing it. Um, and in and how that rolls over into the expedition world was seeing the end game of the expedition, sort of the, uh, what's my reason, my, my, my passion, my drive for doing those expeditions. It was potentially could be to, paddle 2000 miles or to tell the story of a people or to reach a certain goal within that expedition from the marines to the expeditions the thing that i really drew from all, all of those experiences is having a real clear vision and a clear goal of why i wanted to do those things and then setting in process how i was going to do it yeah that's really interesting and, and i mean that <sighs> that's essentially manifestation isn't it that's visualizing yeah. your your end goal and and getting there and and I mean a lot of athletes do the same don't they they do yeah I think it's very important I mean I've got vision boards and I'm a very creative person so I what I see with my eyes and feel in my head and my heart and all that kind of thing creatively I'm, a, I'm very much a visual person so for me having those those visual goals and those visual sort of representation of what I wanted to achieve is important for me definitely important mm. and exactly what you just said you're a creative and I know you know for anyone that has a look has a look at all of your stuff you're a photographer you're a filmmaker you're a brilliant writer as well as this crazy adventurer um would you call yourself a multi-passionate definitely yeah I think it's a it's a it's a passion and it's a, a poison at the same time because I think <laughs> if, if you if you're a creative you know that the creativity is something you can't generally turn on and off. Um, and generally my creativity comes when my eyes close, my head hits the pillow, which is an absolute curse. Um, <laughs> and, I've, and I've been known to wake up at four in the morning and I've got a, a notepad by my bed and I've, I've written narratives to films, TV adverts. Um, I've come up with expeditions and I studied music and sound engineering when I left school. So 
I, everything to do with creativity is sometimes I found hard to channel. Mm. But when I I found my love for the outdoors from a, and I can't, you could say a spiritual perspective, it really helped me mentally and helped my health. When I found that that kind of apex of creativity and being in the outdoors came together, that was when everything really started to happen for me, like create a, from a personal perspective and from a career perspective as well. Yeah, because you really link everything up, don't you? It's, you know, your, your photography and your filming and your writing, it's all linked to your time in the outdoors, really. Yeah, yeah. If I'm not in the, everything I do in life is based around being outside. Um, and if it's not, I generally think, how can I do this outdoors? So I, if I go, I need some sort of time off I'll, or I need to come up with some ideas or anything, I'll just go, I've got a real old ancient woodland that's about 150 yards from my house and it's beautiful with lots of old oak trees and sequoia and redwood trees in there. And it's not very big, but it just gives me the time to go out there and think and clear my head and sort of generate ideas. And my, yeah, my whole career is based around not only me being in the outdoors, but showing people the power of the outdoors and also trying to encourage people to experience the outdoors in their own way really Mm, yeah I think we're both on the same page there um with with being outside and and walking and creativity do you think or, or rather I should say how do you think that being outdoors being in nature affects our mental health um I think I can talk from my perspective how it helps me, mm. certainly. It, I think because the, the world that I live in, in terms of the creative world, there's so much stimulation in terms of editing pictures and then trying to come up with ideas and for films or photography projects. And there's always this external stimulation that is, is really, for me, sometimes overwhelming. And I'm, I think I'm like a classic sort of introvert at heart anyway, so... My my energy is gained from time in small groups, nature, being outdoors, time alone, maybe you could say. So for me, my energy is restored and gained by being walking through nature um, and sort of almost blocking out that external stimulation. So I, quite a lot of the time, if I go walking just around that local woodland, I'll leave my phone at home and I'll take a notepad or a pen or I'll go without anything. Um, and I'll just walk and think and listen. And, and that for me is like a, a restorative process to spend time in nature. Um, and then you've got all the, the actual benefits of being outdoors in terms of the quiet time for you, the colours that are there, the sound of wildlife, the sound of birds, the relaxing aspect of it, of just going out there and being able to breathe again. And I've suffered with anxiety issues in the past. So mm. um, n- n- uh, going into the outdoors for me is not just a creative process it's a a healing process and I've said to people in the past that the outdoors for me is like a sanctuary it's where I go to be my my most creative and it's where I go to heal at the same time yeah isn't that just um I don't know something that we always forget especially people who are living in the cities who or who even haven't had the opportunity to be so much in nature we forget actually how connected to the earth we are and how much it, it can be a source of healing. Um, I, yeah, I really, really agree with everything you've just said. Yeah, it's, it's something that I think we need to, and I think it's, it's a big movement happening at the moment about people reconnecting where there's been this whole big social media boom where we're pulled into our phones and social media and tablets or whatever. Now off the back of that, that kind of reconnection to nature. I mean, I read a great, stat the other day that there's been a 2000% rise in people searching for allotments on Google, mm. which means people are looking to reconnect with the earth a bit more. So I, th- I, I, th- I think that's quite a good example of what, what people, the where, where we are at the moment. Yeah. Or they don't trust what they're buying. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, I'm curious in because so many of us creatives question ourselves or our craft if we're good enough, if we've done it right, you know, all of those sort of things. Is there time for self-doubt when you're out in the wilderness, when you're on expeditions? Like, does it make creativity easier or harder when you're you're sort of out on those expeditions and having to take photos and filming and all the rest of it? I think it depends on 
why I'm there and what I need to achieve creatively. I think if you're there, if we have some any brand involvement or any sponsorship, which we've had in the past, so people would give you money to wear a certain piece of clothing or we've signed magazine deals and they want 20 high-res images of these kind of shots, there's a, definitely a creative pressure to get the shots that they want that are going to be in the magazine or xyz but the, the good thing about expeditions is um i'm a great believer in that kind of organic candid in the moment kind of gritty creativity and i'm, I'm never one to gloss over reality on expeditions and um, i'll take pictures of people whether they like it or not whether they're tired hungry wet cold happy sad all of that kind of stuff so i'm most creative when i'm on an expedition or a journey and things are just organically happening when things have to be staged or set up that's when i think i'm, I'm not at my most effective as creatively and, that, and that, that kind of rolls over in my writing as well i can write about stuff really comfortably things that are happening or happened to me physically like viscerally like in in regards to all of my senses if someone was to say to me right now write about something you've never experienced or something like that I would be a lot slower a lot more hesitant to write like that so everything for me is much more natural when it's just organically happening and it's just happening or playing out there in front of me mm. yeah and I think that's I mean I don't know I think that's quite normal I think that's a, a a very I would say most creatives find it easier to do things that are more personal to them I don't know yeah. actually maybe that's just, <laughs> maybe that's just certain people <laughs> I mean, I would agree. And I think the, the thing is that when we're creative and we do something in a real personal sense or so for instance, a paint or a painter or a photographer or a filmmaker or a musician, when you write something or do something in that creative field that's deeply personal, I mean, you're exposing yourself big time. And creativity is such a deeply personal process because it comes from something somewhere inside us that we can't generally explain. And, and usually you bear your soul when you're doing something creative. So and then when you bear your soul, you're opening yourself up to feedback and criticism and ridicule, and which is perfectly normal because that's only going to be the way that you improve as an artist or creative is getting feedback. But that feedback is sometimes the hardest thing to accept. Oh my gosh, yes. I remember when I used to do painting, when I was um, studying, or even younger, when I used to live at home, I'd come down and be like, what do you think of this painting? There'd obviously always be some kind of criticism, but not in a bad way. You sort of go, no, you don't understand. You don't know anything. You don't know what I mean or yeah. what I'm trying to say and blah, 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 blah. That's it. But yeah, I always say to my clients, never show anything until you are ready for criticism. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And then, I've, I mean, I've over the years, I've learned, because I used to be quite sensitive to criticism and feedback and now I ask for it in every mm. respect because even if someone says something borderline negative or negative I would I usually just say thank you for that because they're giving me a little nugget of information that's just going to make me a better photographer a better writer or a better um, journalist or or in every aspect I really try hard not to see anything as negative mm. um in in their creative world and I, I just see I just see any form of like failure or, or criticism is just as feedback. It's just a feedback system that's just going to make me better and better and better and better until you get to that point where you, you know you're you're just on that plane where you're just you're doing good work consistently and which is up which which is I think when the success starts to just gently starts to trickle in when you're consistent and comfortable and you're in that zone that kind of flow state as I say where and I think you get there by just taking criticism and taking feedback and using it as fuel. Mm. do you not think though that I mean I, I I agree with you but I think there comes a point where certain people will just not be your people they'll just won't like it whatever you do because they're not the people that are gonna like it do you know what I mean like totally totally there will always be haters there will always be haters you cannot <laughs> please, you cannot please everyone and people will always say you could have done this better and you could have done that better or just it's not their taste yeah, that's it. And I think that's a real that's a real thing that we have to as creatives, we have to acknowledge and understand and accept that not everyone is gonna like the way you take a picture or the way you write or the way you your paintbrush strokes on a certain canvas or something like that. Is not everyone is gonna like it and that's okay. 
that's mm. that is that is okay and not to take it personally because there'll be a lot of people out there that do like it and we all have different tastes and colors and shapes and sizes and everything so it's it's not a bad thing it's what you do as a personal as a person and as, as a creative with that negative sort of feedback um, which is what makes all of the difference you could you could sort of internalize that and let it chew you up and stop you sleeping or you could just say thank you yeah and you often speak on stages now as well don't you in front of rather large crowds was there a time when speaking up about all the things that you care about was actually terrifying or have you always been quite good at it no it still is terrifying <laughs> it, every like, I was literally half an hour ago I had a conversation with my friend and I've got a talk to do I'm like scared of having a panic attack uh, on the stage mm. because there's lots of influential people there and stuff like that so funnily enough the best the most comfortable talk I ever did was the first one and then ever, ever since after that I've had an anxiety with public speaking which is completely normal everyone everyone's going to have it at some stage but it seems to me that the, the more that I do sometimes the more that I overthink it yeah and the more I kind of think am I going to be saying the things that people want to hear rather than things that are coming from my heart um, so normally the first few minutes of the public talk are the worst. And then once I get in the flow and I have a good sort of direction and idea for what I want to sort of transmit, the message I want to transmit, you then become a little bit more comfortable with it and then you can start rolling through it. But public speaking is something that I find I find difficult and challenging. And it's just something you've just got to, got to just do more of and get comfortable doing. But also speak about something that you're passionate about because I think when you speak about something that you're passionate about it comes from a different place and you can once you get going you can keep going when when you're talking about something you love mm, that's so true it's really funny that you just said that because it's made me realize that I was exactly the same I I would used to do talks all the time and I used to do workshops and I literally wouldn't even think about it and I just used to get up and like Half the time I'd make it up on the spot. Now I'm like, oh my God, I've got to prepare, got to do this, got to do that. <laughs> so yeah, that's really funny. But I, I completely agree. If, you're, if you care about what it is that you're standing up and talking about, it makes things so much easier and more fun. Yeah, that's it. I totally agree. And when I do my talks, I'm always trying to throw, throw in some, uh, not inspiration, but some, just some encouragement for people to just go out there and enjoy the outdoors and to explore in their own way and like my, my three mantras entertain educate and inspire so that's what I try to do with every public talk is, is to throw a little bit of that in there with some nice imagery and just encourage people just to get out there and see the world and explore it in their own special way. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about your expeditions because I am excited about this. Now most of your expeditions and your traditions first project look at old traditions and and what it is what is being done to preserve them right um why are you so passionate about this i've thought about this a lot and it's something that definitely comes from my childhood like when i was growing up my dad was very much into history and archaeology and anthropology and all that kind of stuff and i grew up in a house where my dad would have books on native americans and um uh, native american like arrowheads and all sorts of historical artifacts and Inuit paintings and everything so I grew up with that subliminal thing around me which at the time I don't think I really understood but my dad had a book once which was by a 1920s photographer called Edward Curtis and he put together I think it's like 25,000 pictures of every Native American tribe in the wow. 1920s and he spent something like 10 years or something like that going around all the Native American tribes at the time when the Western expansion was happening and there, so there was a lot of uncertainty of, of what was happening in the tribes and, and America as a whole. So this chap called Edward Curtis spent all this time photographing them in this beautiful way. He used these plate photograph techniques that were just incredible. And I used to look through this book uh, and just look at these photos and just be in awe of these photos. The regalia that the Native American people wore and also their approach to nature which mm. was very respectful and understanding and nature was never for their greeds it was always for their needs they never took more than what they needed from nature and there was just this overall beautiful respect for the cycle of the seasons and how humans played their role with wildlife in that cycle of the seasons 
And I just fell in love with that. At that time, I didn't understand it. I don't think I just was interested in it. Mm. And then when I went into, into expeditions, I just found that I wanted to learn and meet the people from these remote regions. I wanted to meet the people that called it home. And I wanted to understand potentially a simple way of living that was more connected to nature from a wildlife perspective, from a food perspective, from a spiritual perspective. And I think nowadays when I look back, I, I was looking for more and still am looking for a more simple way to live. Um, and, and the funny thing is, is that the, the cabinet that had all of these artifacts and historical things in that my dad kept, he still has this cabinet. And now when I go on my trips, I bring stuff back to add to that cabinet. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. So I bring brought stuff back from Tibet and Greenland and Mongolia and Alaska and all of these kind of things. And so I, I'm actually almost adding to that family. I wouldn't say it's an heirloom, but it's more of a, a family, a journey. It's a tradition in a way, isn't it? It's a, it's a yeah. family tradition of your own. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's a, a, one of the key things whenever I go on my expeditions that I do bring something back to, to add to that cabinet. Um, and now my dad, he's got used to it. So whenever I come home, he's, all, he's like, what you got for me now this time? Son? And, <laughs> but I always try to bring, bring back something special, unique, different from that native culture. And it can be anything from a Tibetan prayer wheel or to a, an orca tooth that's been carved by like an Inuit lady. Or So it, it, I think it all stems from the relationship with my father and his interest and his love and how that kind of permeated my childhood. Mm. and that that connection to simplicity nature life landscape wildlife and that whole cycle of everything how it all moves together and every trip that I do has all of those components together what strikes me about this Ian is everything about what you were just saying made me feel like well that's because you're an artist that's because you're a creative in my opinion, okay, there's two types of people that go on expeditions. There's people that go on expeditions for themselves. Yeah, totally. And then there's people that go on expeditions for something bigger than themselves. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I feel like the way that you were just describing that is definitely the latter. But even more than that, it's actually, it's a project. It's an artistic project to an extent because you're exploring your curiosity, like you were saying at the beginning and creating something from it and constantly evolving and adding to that like there's a lot of layers there yeah there's there's so many so many layers um and I, it took me a while to work that out in terms creatively when i approached these projects because first and foremost is the story i don't go in um or, or i don't go on an expedition or come up with an idea for an expedition thinking I want to take a photograph of that person or that mountain or that river it's more of right what what story would I love to tell mm. and that story is something that has to give me goosebumps and has to make me feel emotive when I'm talking about it and it has to strike those chords because if it doesn't strike those chords all of that time and all of that money and believe me the expedition world you're not going to get rich the time and thousands and thousands of pounds that you put into it is your own time and your own money what I really enjoy telling people who ask about expeditions is the fact that you spend thousands of pounds of your own money doing them you take three months off you don't earn any money for three months you pay bills for three months and then you come home and still have got to survive and get back into work and xyz and that's that's the reality of it but I think when you go on these journeys all of that is nothing because you have this deep desire to tell a story of a group of people or a landscape or a relationship between all of those things and i think that transcends money time loss of money you move into that kind of whole experience field where the, the experience and the knowledge and the wisdom and the learning and the the, the, the physical and spiritual aspect of the whole experience is priceless it's beyond money and i found that because i feel that i've been very lucky enough to have that insight in my own life and had the lucky enough to have the the courage to just push on and not care about money and debt and that kind of stuff because there has been a time when you, you know you you do 
spend a lot of your own money and you are a little, little bit of debt. Um, that mm. I've been lucky enough to go and do these things. And, and it, I've, I feel that I, when I come back off these trips, I want to do the, the story and the people justice by telling a great story and, and, and encouraging people to, yeah, just to try and do their own thing, go and go and find their own thing that they're passionate about and go and explore that and not worry about time, money, commitment, and, and things that tend to hold people back, which are those generally those three things. Yeah, so true. And I think that it's, it definitely comes back to what you were saying at the beginning in terms of confidence and curiosity at the beginning, doesn't it? And then having the, the courage to push through all of the things that society tells us that we should be doing. Oh, definitely. Someone asked me this really interesting question the other day. They said, what is the biggest sacrifice I've ever made to get where I am? So I, I rent at the moment. I don't own a home and it's always been one of my dreams to own my own home. But mentally, in my mind, calculated all the money I'd spent on all of my expeditions and I could have quite easily put a deposit down on a house. So deep down, I've sacrificed all of these experiences for my own home. But I'm a great believer in timing. And when the time and the universe says it's the right time for you to own your own home, that'll be the time. And mm. when the time comes for me to possibly slow down a little bit and focus on my home life a little little bit more that that time will come but I've just got to trust that the feelings that I'm having and the, the momentum that I'm building and the creative journeys that I go on are all happening at the right time and for the right reason mm, yes but that takes a lot of trust <laughs> faith and trust definitely what do you feel like maybe you've learned from all of this what have you learned from the the experiences and the adventures that you've been on and the people that you've met what's been rather what's been the biggest learning that you have had um crikey that's a tough that's a tough question even though it's a simple question that's a tough question because there's so much um i i think it's my desire to live a much more simple life i've definitely found myself as a person out on these trips in terms of the person that i i am uh, i think before i went on these trips I was caught up in a lot of rhythm and rush of city life. I lived in London. I did a job where I worked insane hours and okay money, but I needed more and I knew deep down I needed more and I wanted more. And when I, when I went on one of these expeditions, I came back and quit a job, which I did two jobs at the time, but I came back and quit a job that gave me like 25 grand a year. So without, so I, when I came back, I didn't have that job to force myself into this world to make something happen into into the creative and adventure world but the, the expeditions and all my time outdoors has just taught me that i just love being outdoors i want to live more simply i can be very happy by living a more simple life and that i want to be and need to be connected to nature every day in in some capacity and i need to be creative within that that framework as well mm. Do you think that with each adventure that you've changed a little bit? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely slowed me down. It's broadened my horizons. It's broadened my awareness of people and culture, social issues, um, cultural issues, it's definitely environmental climate, climate issues. Because a lot of the places that I've been to are remote regions where uh, indigenous groups or native groups are still linked to the landscape as a way of living, as a way of food, spiritual nourishment. So now that the climate is changing in many ways, the people can't live off the land anymore. So they're pushed into certain other aspects and that's affecting the cultures as a whole. So that's really broadening my awareness of those cultural and environmental issues. Mm. And how it's changed me, it's, it's just slowed me down. Uh, it's made me more grateful as a person that I'm able to do what I do it's made me more grateful from a, from a perspective of I, it's, it's, you know, I'm 41 years old now. So it's taken me 37 years to work out by doing these journeys that this is what I want to do. I, I, th I think I find and meet a lot of people that put too much pressure on themselves to work out what they want to do from a certain age because of those social expectations and social norms and taboos or whatever. And it's taken me, yeah, generally 37 years really to work out what I wanted to do. Um, and I'm grateful for that. So I think traveling and expeditions and adventure and creativity has, has taught me to be patient and trust the process. Do you think that we need to go on 
you know, on, on expeditions or on adventures to discover aspects of ourselves? Um, I think maybe not expeditions, but a time, I think time in nature is beneficial to every person out there. Expeditions are, are for people who, who are glutton for that kind of thing, for punishment <laughs> in terms of time away from home and, and, and the physical and mental uh, attrition of doing some of these things sometimes. But then you get that back from the learning and the experiential element of it. But I think everybody would benefit from spending one hour a day outdoors, five hours a week, just because of the the healing benefits of being outdoors and what you can learn from the cycles of the seasons and the changing of the seasons, the coming and going of animals. Because I think when you when you learn about nature and you understand it, or you, you have a, a little bit more understanding of how nature works and what it can do for you, you then care a little bit more about nature. And I think when you care about it, you respect it. And then I think when you respect it and understand it, you you then have that duty of care to protect it. And I think when we ha- we get to that stage where we really want to protect the outdoors, you know, we can make some pretty incredible changes, not just locally, but globally. I completely agree. And I think it's so important to, to spend time in nature and to, and to realise how, co- how connected, intrinsically connected we are to it without really knowing um, half the time. Do you think, is it something that you said earlier about all of the people and the communities and the traditions that you've come across do you think that there's a common thread that links all of these different places and the people and the traditions that you found oh that's a good question yeah I definitely think there's something that connects all of them and that is their love and respect and desire to protect the landscape that they live on and their respect for it is just it, it goes beyond the people and the, and the group it's a spiritual historical aspect of of these cultures that they're they the way they perceive nature is not something that they go into it's something that they are part of as people and their their view of how they harvest animals and fruits and the bounty of nature um they they only take when that when they can nowadays it, it's sometimes slightly different because of uh, restrictions of what they can and can't take from the landscape but they would only take what they they need rather than they would never take um, enough to last all of this certain time they would go out and fish every day or hunt every day and I love the way they use the word harvest so when they go into the landscape to harvest an animal or a fruit they use the terminology harvest in in respect to the the fact that when they harvest it from the landscape it will return next year like a crop so if they yeah. were to harvest, harvest the salmon from the river or they would harvest a moose from the landscape or they harvest a berry from another part of the landscape, it would then return next year. Um, and it's not just a, it's not just a, uh, a, a word that comes from the mouth. It, it's it's a, a spiritual approach that they have with the landscape. But now, obviously, with things changing where there's commercial fisheries, restrictions on what fish can and can't be taken from rivers, the, the communities are slightly changing um, and their approach to the landscape is slightly changing. So certain times a year they can take fish and then sometimes they can't take fish. So they would then be pushed into these small community shops that are opening up in these tribal villages. Um, and then obviously in these shops, there is processed food, sugars, fats, all of this kind of modern processed food. So diabetes is on the rise. And, and and all of those things that come with modern processed food. So the closer these uh, the, the, these indigenous groups and native groups stay to the landscape, I would imagine the more happy that they are. It's so interesting, isn't it? How much modernization and technology and to a certain extent greed is threatening these ancient traditions that we we really don't know that much about. Like we still don't know, um, you know, so much of how these ancient tribes and and tribes that still exist today live and work and and behave um and it's it's interesting what you were saying about harvesting and certain times of year and and then now that there's these restrictions in place and i would imagine and i hope i'm wrong but i would imagine that 
their restrictions don't take into account you know what time of year they hunt for certain things and and why and um and their actual traditions around that yeah so when when it comes when i was on the yukon there was um so in a north in historically um from what from what i've learned they could take the fish from the river at any point in time they would just do it because there was no ownership of land the land was nature and the people were nature and there was never a this is my land this is your land there were territories and, and sort of tribal regions but it was never from what i understood was never there was never a restriction on what they could and can, can take now because of um, commercial fishing out in the Bering Sea, uh, they're limiting the number of salmon that are coming into the Yukon River to spawn. So the Yukon River, I think it's the longest salmon run in the world, about 3,000 miles, where the salmon come in to the Yukon River and then go to their spawning grounds up in the source of the river in Canada. So now, um, because of the commercial fishing, it's limiting the salmon that are coming into the river. And as a result of that, the wildlife fishing game in the US are saying to the native people that still live along the whole length of the Yukon, yes, you can take uh, fish from the river, but you can only take it on Saturday between six and five, and you can only use you can only use this net to catch this size fish. So, wow. So, to a certain degree, they are changing changing the way the native people live from the river, and as a result, they're being pushed into these small community shops which then hold all of the processed foods and so on and so on. Um, but from some respect, the wildlife fishing game are doing it to maintain the flow of salmon up the river. But mm. as a bi- but as a by result, it's then affecting the native people. So there's this massive disparity of what the native people are actually, um, that, that, that they deserve to take whatever they want from the river. They've been there 10, 20,000 years, their ancestors. They deserve what they, to take whatever they want, I believe. So yeah, there there is some some difficulties in that respect. Do you think it's lack of communication as well between all the different parties? Yeah, I would think it's definitely definitely part of that, and just just the overfishing, the the, mm. the the commercial fishing trawlers out at the mouth of the river and out in the Bering Sea that are just taking too much river. And I even watched a a very short documentary about these native people that lived in Canada, I believe the other day, and they have lived for 10,000 years on herring row, which attaches itself to seaweed and stuff like this. Um, and in recent memory, the, there's been a huge reduction in this herring row. So herring eggs that have been, been placed there by the herring when they come in and they're massive shoals of, um, that come from the sea because of the commercial fishing. Um, and recently they put a restriction on the commercial fishing and now more herring coming back in and now the native people can harvest the herring road back from the the seaweed Mm. so that was a really beautiful thing to see on on that short film that short documentary so I think there just needs to be a better relationship between the government and the native people and an agreement made where the native people can harvest whatever they 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 would like from the rivers Mm. oh it's just yeah (laughs) yeah but there's a lot of good stuff happening you know there is yeah there's a lot of um that's a negative um stance on what is actually happening in communities but there's so many good things happening you know the the cultures are alive and strong and traditions are alive and strong from what i've seen and the younger generation in some of these native alaskan groups and um in some of the other places that i've been there is still people that care about the language the clothing the history traditions um and there's so many people that are sustaining those those traditions and the younger generation are you know following suit with that so there's so much good stuff happening as well Mm. what was what has been your favorite expedition so far i think the yukon one was my favorite because it was my my generally my first real true big one and it was the one that kick-started everything for me and I met two or three really incredible people on that trip who were with me that paddled the whole way with us and it was one that was just started from an idea in my bedroom looking at a map on the wall so it was the one that really kick-started it all for me so I kind of look upon that quite fondly and it was the one where I thought yeah I can I can do big stuff like this and transmit a, a really good story afterwards so it's the one that gave me the most confidence in 
okay, yeah, I'm, I'm on the right track here. Something that I'm doing is, is right. Nice. Okay, well, my very last question for you, Ian, what would you say is your mission in this lifetime, your sole mission in this lifetime? My sole mission, wow. Um, I think it is to be a storyteller, be a, a written storyteller, visual storyteller, to um, tell the story of cultures, landscapes, people, and how the two historically intertwine but also to inspire and educate and entertain people to go out there and, and find adventure and explore the world from their own personal perspective. Okay, I lied. Last question. <laughs> <laughs> how, would you, how would you love the world to be in 50 years' time? What would you love to happen and love to see? I would like the world to be a peaceful place a place where everybody is more connected to nature and the outdoors in a way that they're, you know, it's, it's from a holistic benefit. So they know that being time in, in the outdoors is an, a, a desire for the human soul, that nature and encouraging people into nature is part of school curriculum. I would love that. Mm. so we encourage more children and children allowed to be children in the outdoors and we teach them how to protect the environment um, and how to care for the environment um, how the world to be a place where we use better resources for energy and electricity and where we stop the, the, the global sort of crisis climate crisis and we find more sustainable ways to fuel industry and the planet and homes and all of that kind of thing um, and also some of the cultures and some of the people the remote cultures and some of those people I've met that their traditions are still as strong as they were hundreds a thousand years ago and the skills and the knowledge and the wisdom from those people is being passed down because people want to learn and people want to sustain that knowledge yeah that's my that's my vision for the world in 50 years time Nice. Oh my gosh, I could go on forever, but I won't because there's loads more questions I want to ask. <laughs> Tell us what your next project or adventure is, Ian. Wow. So my next project is, it's another big one, believe it or not. Surprise, surprise. So <laughs> in July, I'm going to be uh, on an island off the coast of Australia called Groot Alant. Um, and it's an Aboriginal island uh, where there's been Aboriginal people living there for 10,000 10, years, I think. And this project is to learn about Aboriginal dream tracks and songlines. Now, these, these dream tracks and songlines are uh, almost like spiritual pathways and trails that travel across the whole of Australia and every place a, a, an Aboriginal tribe or a family has settled. And when uh, an Aboriginal tribal member dies or a family member dies, a song is associated with that person. So a song is written and sung and associated with that person. And when they sing the song, the song spiritually, or uh, like I guess you could say mystically, travels up and down these specific song lines for eternity. And when they sing the songs, it's kind of re-remembering uh, re and uh, respecting the person who the song is attached to. So I'm going to be working with an anthropologist in Australia on this, on this island for a month. Um, and I'm going to be photographing and actually walking one of these song lines. So the most incredible aspect of this whole trip is the fact that uh, no person has ever walked it other than an Aboriginal person. So mm. this track uh, doesn't exist on the ground or anything. So uh, we've had to map the route of the song line, which follows two rivers. And I'm going to be walking it with five young Aborigine guys. Um, and when we follow the route, we're going to be uh, recording GPS data of the route. And we're also going to be training the five young Ar Aboriginal guys to then rewalk the route with Aboriginal people when I'm gone. So we're going to create an actual official, what we're going to call a trans plateau crossing of the island. Um, so Aboriginal people can actually walk the song line safely and respect their ancestors and sing the songs of their ancestors. So not only is it going to be an adventure, it's going to be something that we give back and leave behind so they can then follow that and continue that tradition of that song line, which hasn't been walked, I think, in 80 years. 
absolutely fascinating. I am yeah. so interested in this. I'm, I'm really struggling to understand the, like, how does anybody know the root of the song line? Like, is the song line, like, f- like as in physical root? Or is it more like an energetic, almost like I'm imagining the, you know, like the, oh gosh, the lights in Iceland, for example, the Northern Lights. There's actually maps. So I've got maps of, the song lines that go through eastern australia and this island itself and these these lines come connect communities they like aboriginal communities and everything and and the the map that i've got is a tribal land commission map of the song lines that's come from the aboriginal community that i'm going to be walking through so it's a it's a invisible spiritual dream track that doesn't really exist in any any form as such so it comes from the Aboriginal approach where they, they call it's called dreaming, where when they sing the song, they, they kind of re-energize the spirit of their ancestor. And then by singing the song, the ancestor travels along this respective song line, which is associated with a certain tribe. Oh my gosh, Ian, I have got so many questions about this. I feel like this it's is like a whole other episode. <laughs> it is, it is. And one of the crazy things is that the anthropologist that I'm, I'm going to be working with, he's not going to be walking it with me, so I'm going to be walking it on my own and with another photographer. We've, we've got permission to use a helicopter. And whenever, along this route, apparently there's Aboriginal tradition that there's undiscovered cave paintings. So when mm-hmm. I find the cave paintings, or if I find the cave paintings, I've got a GPS, like geotag where they are. And then they're going to fly in an elder who were then blessed bless the painting and understand it and then um, decipher it as we literally as we find it oh my gosh this is so cool yeah I mean it feels a little bit like it's potentially connected to to the ley lines as well so yeah the the main spiritual base uh, of Australia and and there's a there's loads of energetic lines that are based there and and it's the main hub of the energy of the um of the east and so it makes a lot of sense that there's going to be all of these song lines as well um that are connected to that from an aboriginal perspective and of course music has such a high vibration doesn't it and creates so much vibration so that's oh i'm really excited i want to know more now (laughs) yeah and it's that kind of ties into my um, when I left school, when I studied sound engineering, um, I've always had an affiliation with tribal music. And that's kind of how this project came to be, was the fact that I found, which was purely by, you know, uh, happenstance, was just I read an article from the Smithsonian Institute about this lady who was doing a, a hand, uh, uh, she had sand in her hand, and she was doing a painting on the floor with sand, different coloured sands. And I thought, oh, that's Aboriginal. I thought I'll read this this article. And in the article, they were saying that she was drawing a song line from her tribe. So I then Googled it, and the, there's like one or two lines on Wikipedia. So there's zero information on Wikipedia about these things. And yeah, even when I was in Alaska and some other places, Indonesia, where I had this deep, deep affiliation with tribal music. And it definitely goes back to my when I studied music when I left school. So I've, on my vision board at home, I've got the, uh, one of the things is I travel to a tribe and record their music. And so what I've had to sort of really put to this anthropologist is, please, can I record some of these songs? And I had a Skype call with him a couple of days ago, and we've, we've recently had permission to make actually the audio recordings of these actual songs that they sing. So yeah, that's going to be incredible. So there's a massive core element which is about the music and the actual song lines. But now it's kind of grown into this, okay, now we're going to walk the route, record the route and train these other Aboriginal guys to continue to keep the route open for people. So it's kind of started in one thing and then grown into, into something big. But I'm trying all my efforts to pitch this to National Geographic because I think this has got enough legs to potentially be featured by Nat Geo. So... Definitely. Well, I feel like it's exactly what you said, you know, your three themes for your talks. It's definitely that, isn't it? It's it's like the inspiration, the education, and what was the third one? Inspire, educate, and entertain. Yeah, exactly. Those three things are right there. 
yeah yeah well i'm really excited to find out more you'll have to let us know when when you're back and you've got it all together but um i i also love that you know the fact that you are creating something that that then the aborigines can can harness and take forwards and even you know use and create more from i think that's really lovely yeah and 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 the interesting thing is the the island itself has no tourism so Mm. they're going to hope this trans plateau route will bring people into the island to be able to walk this route and and sort of connect a little bit closer with aboriginal culture from a real adventure perspective and outdoors perspective and then that will effectively will bring in some money and local into the local economy for the young guys that are actually out there at the moment not doing a huge amount because the the working opportunities out there aren't aren't substantial so this could make it could be the start of something where they bring in a a small economy into the island because the only economy coming out of the island sadly is a big manganese mining project which i'm going to sort of touch on and delve into a little bit how that's affecting the environment and everything while i'm there but yeah so i'm just hoping that it will just shed light on this individual songline and hopefully people might come in in the future and walk it and and, and experience a little bit of the culture as as i will Mm, i think that's so lovely and it really does feel like you know you really care about all of the expeditions that you've been on and that there's there's always some kind of positive impact. And I think that's so important, especially when we're going into environments and, and situations and, you know, and cultures that aren't our own, that it's, it's important to, to give back in some way or to at least leave a positive grace. And that's something that I found actually, I, I've, I've, I've struggled with a little bit in the past in terms of what can I give back? Because when you go into these, uh, you go into certain communities, as an example, on the Yukon, and someone says for you to speak to this elder who's got all of these beautiful stories and a dictionary that's taken her 50 years to write and everything. And she's spending five hours with you telling you about all of this. And we're filming those people. It's kind of like, what can I give back for all of this time and knowledge and wisdom that you've given me? And that's something I battled with in the past, really, that, that what can I give back? So when I when I did come back from the Yukon expedition, I wrote letters to them and sent photos that we had taken together with the people. But also, I think one of the things I can give back is to just share the story of there's traditions and stuff like that. That um, and there's people out there that that are living a certain way and still connected to nature, or are, are going through certain cultural social issues. And the fact that you're you're raising awareness and telling a story of a group of people that might not have been told otherwise. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. It's the storytelling, isn't it? That's you know that's a huge part of the impact of sharing that and and hoping that 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 will make a difference in some way. Definitely, and I'm tr- always trying to find ways that I can give back. And the whole um, the Aboriginal story and, and project where all of the photos and, and the music that I record and the photos that I get, I'm going to then put them into a package and then send everything to the people. So I'll print the pictures off. I was even thinking about taking a Polaroid camera and taking Polaroid pictures and giving those to the kids and giving those to the people. And, um, but I, 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 I'm always thinking about that. What can you give back to the people that are giving you, giving you near enough everything? Mm. Oh, right. I think we better end it there. <laughs> yeah, I could talk for hours about this. Stuff, didn't I? Um, yeah, me too, it turns out. So listen, Ian, tell us where people can find you. Where, where can they find you online? Uh, for any of my photography, you can find on Instagram, uh, first and foremost, which is at Ian, the letter E and Finch. Uh, or my website, which is ianefinch.com. That's got all of my expeditions, all of my journalism, all my photos short films it's got it's a one-stop hub for, hub for everything literally that i've ever done basically my whole life is on that website yeah and that's it really no no more any more than that so yeah find out more there thank you so much ian thank you for sharing your adventures with us and your wisdom and the wisdom of the ancients and i look forward to this next project of yours and to find out more about it and I'm sure everyone will be interested. Everyone who's listening will be interested too. So do go check out Ian, check out his adventures and his amazing photography and everything else that he's doing. And let us know what you've thought about this episode. Thank you. 
There is so much in this chat and so much more that we could have delved into and I hope that you loved it as much as I did. If anything, I hope that Ian's love of nature, simplicity and connection inspires you to find your own version of what that means and looks like to you. And at the very least, that it encourages you to go outside that little bit more. Thank you for listening to the Humans on a Mission podcast. I always love hearing your thoughts or how the episode may have inspired you. So please do share. You can do so by joining me in the Humans on a Mission Facebook group or hit me up on Instagram at Natalia Comis. And if you are looking to find your soul mission, do head over to my website, nataliacommerce.com and download your free Discover Your Mission workbook to get you started.